Welcome back to the Governance Podcast. My name is Sam DeCanio. I'm a lecturer and the Associate Director of the Center for the Study of Governance and Society here in the Department of Political Economy at King's College London. We're very pleased to be joined today by Larry Bartels, who is the May Worthen Shane Chair of Public Policy and Social Science and Co-Director of the Center for the Study of Democratic Institutions at Vanderbilt University. Today, we're going to be discussing Professor Bartels' most recent book, which was co-authored with Chris Aiken of Princeton University, Democracy for Realists, Why Elections Do Not Produce Responsive Government. I can't think of a more relevant book uh, that addresses such important issues. Larry, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. So I wanted to start by asking, um, how did you come to write this book? Well, uh, Chris Aiken and I had known each other for many years. I was actually a student of his, and so we shared a lot of prejudices about democracy, among other things, and it seemed to both of us that political scientists thinking about democracy was warped by um, a complex of beliefs that derive mostly from popular culture, not only in America, but especially in America, uh, which we call the folk theory of democracy, the idea that democracy is and should be constructed to translate the detailed preferences of individual citizens into government policy. Um, If you study political science, you certainly recognize that that's not entirely what goes on, but we thought that uh, even among political scientists, there was a lot of misthinking about what we observed in the world around us that was at heart basically a reflection of faith in that set of ideas and a kind of willingness to warp what we observed around us to try and fit in with a romanticized vision of what democracy is. And so what are the key, what what do you see as the key components of this romanticized vision or this folklore of democracy? How would you characterize the folklore that, that you're sort of responding to in the book? Well, first that ordinary citizens have preferences about everything under the sun. And so when a government decides what its policy with respect to some specific issue is going to be, it can and should consult the preferences of citizens and in some sense try and maximize the satisfaction of citizens' preferences in the choice of a policy, and that a good government is one that does that. What, what are some of the costs that you see uh, that might exist if we adopt an inaccurate depiction of what democratic governance actually entails? Well, one important one, I think, is that people get frustrated when they look around them and find that policies aren't always in accord with their wishes. Uh, I think often for good reasons, political elites are making decisions on other bases based on their own information and their understanding of how things fit together and what's feasible. And in cases where they're making those decisions in a way that seems to ignore public opinion, people view that as a violation of the norms of democracy, when in fact I think the judgment of elites is an important part of the way we ought to think about democracy and certainly about the way we ought to think about policymaking in contemporary societies. 
Um, so this is a fairly elitist depiction of democracy, not in the sense that you're endorsing elite rule by any means, but in terms of your understanding of how policy is actually uh, drafted and implemented, you're, you don't see a very you don't see voters playing a very large role in the actual operation of democratic go- contemporary democratic governance. Well, they pay a large role in the sense that they pick the political elites who are in charge at any given time and. That can be immensely consequential because in our understanding what political elites are doing most of the time is implementing policies that they understand to be good for the country in one way or another. So the choice of which people get there is hugely important, but the preferences of individual citizens about policies play a much smaller role in this version of democracy than in the folk theory. Okay. What is the evidence that you use to critique the this this folk this folk wisdom account of democracy? Well, the first important kinds of evidence I think predate modern social science. A lot of political analysts who spent time talking to ordinary people came to realize that they really didn't have preferences about detailed matters of public policy. Um, I think Bryce in the late 19th century said that if you talk to an ordinary person within a matter of minutes, the conversation is reduced to a few prejudices and a few enthusiasms for particular political figures, and the rest, insofar as it's filled in, is filled in on the basis of cues from the political elites themselves. In contemporary social science, there's been a lot of analysis of voting behavior, and much of it has focused on the issue preferences of individual citizens and on correlations between their preferences about specific policies and their voting choices. And in some cases, those correlations are pretty strong, and hopeful or wishful theorists of democracy have interpreted those correlations as implying that citizens are voting on the basis of their policy preferences. But if you look under the bonnet, you'll find that in most instances, people are mostly adopting the policy preferences of political leaders that they support for some other reason. One of the most interesting and detailed analyses of this was by Gabriel Lenz, who studied a variety of issues in the U.S. and elsewhere, but maybe the clearest example was the move by uh, George W. Bush to privatize the social security system in the U.S. It was a hugely salient issue in the 2000 campaign when Bush was first running for president, and he took this position that was essentially um, one that hadn't been articulated uh, very clearly in American political discourse before that, but put a lot of emphasis on it, and a lot of the campaign advertising over the course of the 2000 campaign focused on this issue and his idea that people would be better off if the Social Security system was privatized. And if you look at survey data over the course of the campaign, the correlation between people's preferences about that issue and their intended votes did increase substantially. That would be consistent with the idea that people were using their preferences about Social Security privatization to choose which candidate they wanted to support. But if you look at 
shifts in the preferences and vote intentions of the same individuals over the course of the campaign, it looks as though very little of that was actually happening. What was happening much more was that people who had never given a thought to Social Security privatization before heard Bush talking about it and saying that it was a good idea, and people who supported Bush for other reasons therefore decided that it was a good idea and adopted that as their position. People who disliked Bush and tended to vote for his opponent, Al Gore, uh, generally decided that they were opposed to Social Security privatization. And people who were attentive to politics and spent a lot of time listening to political discourse came up with, you know, reasonably sophisticated sounding explanations for why those were their positions. People with less political sophistication uh, often couldn't say very much about the issue at all or why they had the preferences that they did, uh, but they had clearly learned those preferences from the candidate they were supporting for other reasons. I, I guess that's a that's an interesting example for 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 two reasons. Um, one is that political parties are typically seen as being one of the vehicles that that can uh, that voters can help use to to come up with issue positions if they don't have more detailed policy specific knowledge. But that seems to be suggesting that political what you're what you just described seems to suggest that political parties may be able to sort of manipulate preferences of voters in a way that's sort of a a, a, a top-down model of opinion formation in ways that could have um, uh, disturbing consequences for democratic theory and for democratic responsiveness depending upon the elites that are actually running the political party. So if George W. Bush or uh, if, if, Donald, if people are looking to Donald Trump for cues about the issue positions that they should themselves hold, um, I could see that there might be reason to be concerned about voters' ability to sort of control the actions of elected officials um, if the elected officials themselves are able to influence the preferences that voters actually are espousing. It does appear that much of it, especially on new issues that rise to the fore, mm -hmm. is top-down, whether you want to think of that as manipulation or education, I suppose, depends on what you think of the elite's views. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that could just be consistent with a story of voters using parties as heuristics and um, a large proportion of them might have espoused those positions, even if the party had not had not taken, if even if they had not encountered the information from the political party, that might be the position that they would have held anyway if they were exposed to more information. It could just be a the way democratic communication occurs. Well, and at some times and for some issues, things seem to fit together in party packages in a more or less sensible way. But yeah. uh, for other times and other issues, things fit together in packages that it seems hard to imagine people would come to if they were reasoning independently. So I think there's a spectrum there, and for any given person, some of their preferences probably seem to fit together in a way that could be construed as sensible and others less so. It, at one level, the, the book describes problems with democratic representation that might occur um, with, with low information voters. But the book also suggests at different times that there also might be problems with voters that have relatively larger amounts of political information. Um, can you describe what you, what you see uh, some of those problems actually might – what are some of those problems? 
Well, if you adopt this top-down view, the main distinction between people who are more attentive and better informed in some sense is that they are generally better at parroting the rhetoric of the political elites on their side. Now, if they've somehow attached themselves to the right political elites or attached themselves for reasons that we think of as being sensible, then again, you might construe that as them being able to enunciate clearly the ideology of the party that they've embraced. Um, but if you're worried about what the elites are trying to push, then the fact that these people are better able to recite the arguments on their side, often not really any better able to recite the arguments on the other side, uh, might be concerning. Obviously, that depends in part on the media environment and the extent to which people either self-select or are channeled into uh, communications that are supportive of their worldview rather than representing a kind of broad spectrum of political opinion. Do you think that any proposals for, uh, for direct democracy can help address some of these information problems? Involving voters directly in political processes through direct through direct primaries or through referenda, um, or in or efforts to enhance democratic deliberations. Do you see these as being mechanisms that might be um, effective solutions to some of these information problems that that you identify in the book? Well, insofar as people have limited information, trying to translate their preferences directly into policy is often likely to be a bad idea. And when we've observed situations where direct democracy is used extensively, it seems as though mostly what happens is that political elites pose the questions in ways that produce the kinds of answers that they want, and the outcomes are in some nominal sense, responsive to citizens' preferences, but uh, maybe violating their uh, underlying political interests in a way that's counterproductive. One of the examples that we talk about in the book was uh, research by one of our PhD students at Princeton, a guy named Jeff Tesson, who studied a system in Illinois in which local fire departments had to go to the voters to get support for increasing their budgets. And the outcome of this uh, over time was that the places where citizens had to vote on the budget voted for smaller increases. The fire department's equipment and training became antiquated. They became less good at responding to fires as measured by how many minutes on average it took to get to the scene of a fire. Uh, as a result, there was more property damage and their insurance rates went up probably to a level that was higher than the amount that they were saving in taxes by underfunding their, their local fire department. So that's an instance of ordinary citizens apparently shooting themselves in the foot by not having a good understanding of the connections between causes and effects within the, the governmental system. And it it strikes me that if if uh, if democratic politics can be uh, short circuited by voters' poor understanding of causal relationships between policies, um, when it comes to more technical 
situations where the linkage between a voter's electoral decision and the consequences of that decision as reflected in, in policies that are implemented as a result, if that causal connection is less clear or if it's counterintuitive or if it involves a much more complex process like monetary policy, complex foreign policy issues involving involving the military, it strikes me that that, that problem that we see at this sort of very local level with a very simple issue involving fire departments, that strikes me as being something that should be fairly concerning. Well, and the implication of this argument, I suppose, is that direct democracy ought to be reserved for the most basic questions where ordinary citizens' understanding is likely to be most clearly connected to the choices that are put before them. So a kind of common argument is that when it comes to basic issues of national identity, direct democracy might be an appropriate decision mechanism. Of course, as people in Britain have seen, even basic decisions about national identity have complexities that ordinary citizens may not entirely grasp. It, it seems as though complexity just seems to pose problems if, if electorates don't have causal, causal understanding of issues. Although I guess the, the the flip side to that question is whether or not elites that are making technocratic decisions themselves understand causal relationships among among these issues. Well, um, often they don't. I mean, most elected politicians are necessarily generalists. What one has to hope for, I suppose, is that the governmental system, more generally the bureaucracy and the system of information gathering and decision-making that actually determines details of policy and contemporary governments is as on top of things as one can be, given the complexities of these decisions. How much faith do you have that that's actually the case? Well, obviously it varies by policy area and by context. I think um, people probably underestimate the extent to which governments are competent at doing a lot of what they do um, when they try and do things that they're not competent at. Obviously, things can go wrong, but uh, I think people often overestimate the kinds of difficulties that are involved in a bureaucratic system of decision-making. One of the alternatives that academics have proposed uh, for ensuring democratic responsiveness and ensuring democratic accountability um, is what's referred to as a retrospective model of, of voting. And the, the basic idea being that if, if the economy performs poorly, the incumbent party suffers in the next election cycle. Um, the, what is the book's argument about the potential shortcomings of retrospective voting? Well, first I'll say that as an empirical matter, we think there's a lot of that going on. Mm -hmm. It seems to provide a better description of elections than the folk theory of democracy does. If you look at the variation from election to election in how well the incumbent party does, the state of the economy in the months and maybe as much as a year leading up to the election is a big factor in accounting for how well the incumbents are likely to do. So clearly a lot of people are acting on the basis of that kind of thinking. The difficulty, I think, is with the normative interpretation that people are therefore holding the government accountable and 
forcing it or incentivizing it to produce policies that are going to serve their interests in the long run. Part of the difficulty here is that people don't have a very good sense of their own long run, but even in terms of assessing how well the incumbents have performed in the current moment, um, they tend often not to be very good, especially, again, for more complex issues of public policy. The Environmental Protection Agency in the U.S. many years ago organized a survey of public attitudes about various kinds of environmental problems, and they were taken aback to see that there was essentially no correlation between the ratings of the severity of different environmental problems as gauged by specialists within the agency and the relative importance that was attached to them by ordinary citizens. But maybe that shouldn't be surprising. A lot of the most important environmental threats to our well-being are not things that we can see or feel in any direct way. And so uh, it's probably not surprising that even in an instance like that, ordinary citizens aren't very good at judging whether things are going well or badly, much less whether it's the government's fault uh, that they are. One of the uh, one of the examples that that the book discusses um, involves shark attacks. So one of your your discussion of the shortcomings associated with with retrospective voting as a mechanism for ensuring that that good public policies are implemented uses a, ca- a case study of shark attacks uh, in American presidential elections. So um, let me ask a question that's got to be one of the more unusual ones that we've asked in the podcast before. How do shark attacks have implications for American presidential elections? And what do they tell us about, about retrospective voting? Well, if you take seriously the idea that <clears throat> voters are likely to vote on the basis of whether things are, seem to be going well or badly, without really understanding the underlying policy-making process or the responsibility of elected officials, the implication is that we should be able to find instances in which they're rewarding or punishing incumbent leaders for conditions that are clearly outside their control. The first idea that we had about how this would happen involved a meteor strike wiping out Arizona, and our claim was that Um, we'd find the survivors voting against the incumbent party. Well, we don't have any evidence of meteor strikes hitting Arizona, so we were looking around for other instances in which we could find electoral responses to disasters that were pretty clearly outside the incumbent's control. And so one of the instances that we looked at was a series of shark attacks off the coast of New Jersey in the summer of 1916, just a few months before the presidential election in 1916. The incumbent president, Woodrow Wilson, was himself from New Jersey, and some of his cabinet members had uh, houses on the New Jersey shore where people often would spend their summers. It was a big tourist area, but there was, over a sequence of a, a week or two, a series of fatal shark attacks. There were three people altogether who were killed by sharks. And of course, there was a huge uproar. Um, The bathers, not surprisingly, were unenthusiastic about getting into the water. And so many of them canceled their summer trips to the Jersey Shore. It was a big economic calamity for the locals who were surviving mostly on the basis of this summer tourism. 
And if you look at the voting pattern in the 1916 election, uh, several months later, by comparison with previous elections, it looks as though people in the most affected parts of the state uh, voted against Woodrow Wilson at a rate about 10 percentage points higher than they had before or would have otherwise. So they were punishing the president for the fact that the shark attacks had ruined their summer tourism business. Now you might say the president should have supplied government aid to assist them, but that was a policy option that would not have been considered seriously at the time. It wasn't something the government typically did to compensate people for those kinds of economic losses, uh, nor could the government prevent the sharks from chomping people if they were going to go into the water. So uh, it seemed like a pretty clear instance in which one would sensibly not hold the president responsible, but nevertheless, people uh, felt bad and they punished the incumbent accordingly. So you, you essentially have voters penalizing elected officials for conditions that they can't control didn't influence and are, are essentially acts of God, essentially. Right. Uh, and so that's one colorful case study, mm -hmm. but one wonders how common that kind of behavior is. So the other thing we did is part of the same analysis was to look at floods and droughts in various parts of the country over the entire course of the 20th century. And there again, it looks as though there was a pretty systematic response of voters to punish the incumbent party when their states were too wet or too dry. Again, uh, not something that the incumbent could do anything about. By the end of the 20th century, there were often pretty vigorous government responses in the ways, uh, in the sense of uh, providing assistance to people who were hit by these calamities. But it doesn't make sense that people would punish incumbents on that basis either, because if they were expecting responses, more or less by definition, on average, half the responses should be better than average and half should be worse than average. And the net effect of that on the incumbent's electoral performance ought to be pretty close to nil. But we saw a pretty systematic pattern of punishment in cases where things went wrong, even if the incumbents were presumably doing their best to ameliorate the situation. So I, I, I suppose that this is identifying a problem with retrospective voting in voters' ability to accurately attribute the social conditions that they are experiencing to policies that were causally responsible for generating them. So the question is, is whether or not voters' understanding of politics is accurate enough to be able to discern whether or not the incumbent party or an incumbent politician has done something that made them worse off, or whether or not they're penalizing a party for conditions that are simply outside of the political system's control. It strikes me, however, that there's a second potential problem with retrospective voting, which is that it requires, for retrospective voting to replace political parties whose policies are ineffectual or are not optimal in some way. Voters have to have information about whether the other party that they are going to vote into power is proposing policies that will have better effects than the incumbent. So even if they correctly causally attribute the conditions that they're experiencing, even if voters 
understand that the existing level of economic growth or unemployment that their society is experiencing was was influenced by specific policies that the incumbent party implemented. In order to get better policies to replace the ones that they are displeased with, they still have to have knowledge about the effects of the other party that they are presumably going to be replacing the incumbent party with. Well, I think the system would work more efficiently if that was the case, but in fact that's often not the case. Um, If you look at the responses to negative conditions, it seems as though voters are often just reaching for whatever alternative is in sight rather than making a careful calculation about whether those alternative leaders are in fact going to adopt some different set of policies. Um, Maybe the best example of this is the Great Depression where there was a lot of economic distress and a lot of incumbent governments being voted out of office, but often being replaced by uh, almost any kind of alternative that didn't make any particular kind of economic or political sense. And so in places where the incumbent government was on the right, they'd be voted out and replaced by a government on the left. In places where the incumbent government was on the left, they'd be voted out and replaced by a government on the right. If the left and the right had both presided over economic declines, then often people would find some other party or movement to attach themselves to, um, not because they had any clear understanding of what policies were actually going to improve the situation, but just because they figured things were going badly and they had to try something new. Hmm. That's fascinating. Um, what are your what are the solutions that you propose to this problem? I mean, I, I think there's the 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 book is offers a fairly fairly pessimistic account of contemporary democratic politics. It suggests that the theories that we use to understand how democracy functions under contemporary political conditions don't accurately depict how this how these systems are actually functioning. Um, what do you have any sort of alternative that you offer for how to improve the functioning of democratic political systems? Well, the first order implication, I think, is just that we should have a more realistic understanding of what democracy is and how it works. There's a quotation in the book from the philosopher John Donne who says that you know it's nice to think that we can make the government do what we want because then we're not subject to its tremendous power in our lives, but in fact, that's probably a misperception. So if we take a more chastened view about the workings of democracy, it may be that we'll find ourselves less often frustrated by how things work and less likely to make ourselves worse off by adopting institutions that are based on the folk theory of democracy and that overstate the extent to which ordinary citizens can actually sail the ship of state themselves. So, for example, the over-reliance on direct democracy in some places, um, the general direction of the candidate selection process in the U.S. especially, but in many other countries as well, where there's been an increasing emphasis on popular control and trying to leave it to rank-and-file party members to choose their leaders. Um, 
that system seems not to work very well in a lot of settings. And so having a proper respect for the expertise of political leaders and trying to find some constructive role for them in vetting potential candidates and choosing among the potential political elites, I think, would make for a healthier and generally better functioning system. I understand why information problems might create problems with voters' selection of candidates in the ways that you just described, but why should we think that political elites are going to be better at selecting candidates or policies? I mean, so, so couldn't somebody, why, why shouldn't we look at the contemporary political landscape and not be impressed by the, by the, by the wisdom of political elites' decisions that, that, we're, that we're observing? What, what, I, I, what gives you the faith that political elites will be able to make better, better decisions than, than common voters? Well, when it comes to candidates, I think their main advantage is that they've actually worked with these people and they have a better sense of their qualities and they have a strong incentive to pick somebody who's going to be a good representative of the party and a successful leader if they're in office. When it comes to policies, as I've said, they often are themselves generalists and mm -hmm. only um, in a limited way uh, on top of specific policy problems. But insofar as they have experience in dealing with specialists and bureaucrats who deal with specific policy issues, they seem uh, in a better position than ordinary citizens are to be able to exercise thoughtful control and management. So maybe let me focus the question a little bit. Um, it's certainly the case that elites have specialized knowledge that voters do not have access to. But it is also the case that you can find well-intentioned elites that simply disagree about which technocratic policies are, are most efficient for dealing with social problems and addressing the political questions of the day. And I suppose the question then becomes, um, if elites that are more politically sophisticated and are better informed disagree them, among themselves about the most effective way of treating a complex social question or a complex economic question where causal relationships are not clear to anyone, how do we know which elites should be selected to be in, in charge of policy decisions, especially when, if we get that question wrong or if the wrong elite is in charge of monetary policy and makes a decision about interest rates that is actually highly inefficient, the consequences could be so grave? Well, the answer is that we can't be sure that the political elites are going to make the right decisions. It's a kind of recognition of the difficulty and complexity of the problems that any modern government faces. Um, there is at any given time, though, a kind of range of policies that are, if not consensual, uh, at least ruled in or ruled out by um, the shared wisdom of the political class at a given moment. Now, what this calls attention to is the importance of where political elites get their information and their values. And so I think one of the most understudied aspects of democracy in 
contemporary political science is about the worldviews of political elites and their mm -hmm. ideologies and the networks of knowledge and communication that they're embedded in and an understanding of why you know, some policies at any given time are pretty much generally ruled out by anyone who has uh, a modicum of political expertise and experience, whereas others, as you suggested, are very much matters of ideological disagreement. And those boundaries change over time. People uh, mostly agree about some aspects of economic policy, and then when things go wrong, that understanding may erode or even be shattered and replaced with much more uncertainty about what the right economic policies are. Uh, but there's a community out there, a policy community, that has at a given time some understanding about at least the range of plausibly reasonable policies in a given area. Um, and the, the, when, so when you describe a policy community, you're referring to bureaucratic experts in government, academics that, that are studying these given these questions. Right. Um, and the political leadership that's more or less tied into that policy community and grasps what aspects of policy are reasonably consensual at a given moment and which ones are sufficiently uncertain that ideology ought to play a, a larger role in decision-making. I, I guess the concern here is, um, is as follows. Much of this book is a critique of how academics think about democracy. Um, you are suggesting that, that professional political scientists and social scientists more generally have adopted an incorrect and costly vision of what democracy entails that is not supported by the empirical evidence um, that, that, you're, that you're drawing attention to. And I, I, I guess the concern is simply that just as academic elites that are incredibly political, that are incredibly sophisticated, they're they're well intentioned, they're 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 talented, um, they're 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 for the most part good people trying to solve social problems and make the world a better place. This book, in in many ways, is suggesting that they have adopted a grossly in inaccurate depiction of how democracy functions. And I, I suppose that my my concern here would just be that if academics um, can make that kind of an error in their theoretical understanding of democracy as a system of governance, we should also expect to see similar errors occurring in their analysis of public policy. Um, and if, if that's possible, um, it could be that the people that are trying to analyze monetary policy or tax policy are making errors that are just as egregious as the academics that have adopted the, this, the, the folklore of, of democracy that you, that you critique throughout the length of this book. And if that's the case, um, I think I'm, I may be a bit more pessimistic than you are on this, on this account, but I, I, I just, the concern is just that the policy decisions that that policy elites are implementing are suffering from the same kinds of informational problems that you're documenting and suggesting exist among academic specialists and democratic theorists? Well, there's certainly reason for concern and even for pessimism. I'm not trying to suggest that this elitist system operates in a way that is going to make everyone happy and wealthy and wise. 
and I wasn't trying to suggest that this book was a hopeful account of democracy by any by any measure. I think the ways in which our understanding of democracy has been warped by what we call the folk theory as a kind of special case in that political culture attaches so much importance to these kind of romanticized notions of democracy. And so there's a kind of straightforward explanation there, I think, for at least part of where we go wrong. Um, that may be true in some specific policy areas, but maybe less so in others where there isn't some particular reason for policymakers to slant their understanding in one direction rather than another. But it's always, as I say, something to be concerned about. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, so I, I, I'm fully sympathetic to that point, and I suppose that when it comes to sort of technical questions about whether a policy will have a very specific effect on an economic condition, that kind of question doesn't involve these sort of larger cultural associations that people have with democracy as a, as a good form of governance. And as a desirable as a desirable thing, um, well, an economic policy is obviously immensely complicated. But we've worked out some infrastructure in order to make economic policy making somewhat more um, realistic and responsive. I think by, for example, creating government bureaucracies whose job is to pretty carefully measure economic conditions, and so. We can see, you know, when the state of the economy is improving or degrading, even if we don't have any clear causal understanding of why that is. Whereas in the case of democracy, it would be harder to say that we have any good yardstick for knowing when the democratic system as a whole is functioning better or worse. Yeah, that that seems sensible, and I I, I guess the the concern there just remains that if if economic conditions are being caused by complex causal processes, um, measures of, of how the economy is performing won't necessarily guarantee that we can adopt policies that effectively address these complex causal processes. No, um, of course. Yeah. And when you have a measure, policy often gets tailored to the measure rather than yeah. to the underlying reality. So there are interesting debates right now among economists about better measures of well-being than the ones that we have on hand. Sure. sure, great. Can you tell us a little bit about about what the next project is? Well, I'm thinking about a variety of things, but one of the issues that I've gotten interested in lately is what people sometimes refer to as the crisis of democracy in Europe. Um, taking the view that I've just expounded, uh, it would seem unlikely that that crisis is, in the first order, uh, a crisis that's caused by something that's wrong with public opinion, but rather would have more to do with something that's going on among political elites. And so I've attacked this issue from a variety of directions. Maybe the most well worked out is to get a sense of the <clears throat> sentiment for right-wing populism in various parts of Europe over the last 15 or 20 years. It turns out that we have pretty good survey data that allow us to measure things like uh, antipathy to the European Union, uh, negative attitudes about immigrants, disaffection with democracy and distrust of democratic leaders and institutions, um, 
economic disaffection, all the things that are commonly pointed to as ingredients in the wave of support for right-wing populist parties. Kind of surprisingly, if you look across Europe as a whole, those sentiments are really not any more prevalent now than they were at the turn of the century. Mm. Really been quite stable mm. over time across the board. But we do see this increase in support for right-wing populist parties. Why is that? Well, my explanation is that it has almost entirely to do not with an increased demand from ordinary citizens, but with a improvement in the supply, the willingness of political entrepreneurs to step up and appeal to those sentiments in a way that they didn't so much before. And so my slogan here is that it's not a wave of right-wing populism, it's a reservoir of public support for right-wing populism that political leaders are now tapping into more energetically and more enthusiastically than they did before. Do, do you see this as being driven by specific, any specific political events? Is this reservoir sort of always always present and it's just a question of whether or not political elites decide that they're going to try to tap it or that it can be effectively tapped in a given election cycle? Well, my guess is that it's always there. Um, we don't have very systematic public opinion data going back before the beginning of the 21st century for this whole set of questions that I just described. Uh, but if you look, for example, at the American electorate at various times in political history, there seems to be a fair amount of appetite for what you might call populist or uh, even authoritarian attitudes and figures, if not specific policies. So certainly there are fluctuations in the extent to which people are attracted to these things over time. But what seems to have been happening over the last 15 or 20 years is not an uptick in public enthusiasm for this set of ideas, but rather um, the increased willingness of political leaders to appeal to them. Of course, political leaders at any given time are testing the market, and so it may be that um, they've been swayed by the increasing rhetoric and the um, concerns in the wake of the euro crisis, for example, to think that they can appeal to these sympathies in a way that they could have but didn't previously. If you look at across Europe at the, the relationship between right-wing populist sentiment and the success of right-wing populist parties, the correlation is very weak. The success or failure of particular parties seems to have to do with things other than the general appetite of the public for those kinds of policies and rhetoric. Great. Well, we look forward to, to this project as it, as it moves along. Um, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. My pleasure.